0: And let's give a warm welcome to the host of The H Spot, David Hirschkopf. Last time on The H Spot, David was speaking with his father, world-renowned attorney Philip Hirschkop. Now back to the conversation. One of the things career-wise we have in common, and, and our careers are very different, and I don't know how you feel about this, is like the Loving case was probably your best known case, and it happened at the very beginning of your career. And for me, you know, I'm in my 50s, but my best known product and probably the thing I'm best known for, at least to this point in my life, is the product I created when I was 23, I think. How do you feel about that for you? Like, do you wish, you know, your best known thing had happened later in life or do you care or how is that for you?
1: Well, not great feelings towards the loving case because for the first 25, 30 years till the first movie was made, it disappeared. We were very concerned about the safety of the Lovings moving back to live in Virginia permanently. And so we shunned all publicity. I didn't really have a desire for it. My co-counsel had a very active political career. And so he, more than I, because I didn't at all seek any recognition for the Loving case. Once the movies came out and then you know people started calling a lot, it, and nowadays, the Loving case is the main impetus for the same-sex marriages, the law governing those. So it's just got a lot more coverage and things. It wasn't my favorite case. It wasn't my most interesting case. It wasn't my most difficult case. And I'm unaffected by the timing of it. There are other things that came up.
0: With that in mind, I mean, which case would you say is the case that, for whatever reason, stands out? Like, which is the case that in your career that stands out the most?
1: Well, it's not a case, actually. I was more or less lead counsel to most of the major groups demonstrating in Washington against the war in Vietnam. And I took months off from practice. I didn't get paid. I was in the streets sometimes I'd grab a hotel room. I lived 40 minutes out of the city, but I couldn't even get home change clothes for a week at a time sometimes. So during the whole May Day collective in that part, I was in DC for close to four months every day and I had my own, I said my own police cruiser and I rode a motorcycle in my deputy marshals, we all had little marshal bands, but we stopped the war. It was the finest hour for a democracy. People went to the streets, and what we thought was horrendous war, we turned out to be correct when they started publishing what they hadn't been disclosing to the public, but I'm very proud of that. There were a number of lawsuits about it. I represented a number of people. I represented John Kerry's group, and John, when they got arrested at the Supreme Court, Ben Spock, famous actresses, you know, Norman Mailer, a lot of a lot of people um, uh, helped get Mark King out of jail, but it was a major accomplishment. We were able to negotiate the permits, we were able to get the people out of jail so they can continue to demonstrate. We were able to apply techniques we had learned in mass demonstrations and civil rights to the peace movement. That, I always look at as the finest accomplishment. My favorite case was the case to get women into the University of Virginia. It was the first case of women in higher education.
0: Why was that the favorite case?
1: Well, I had a lot of depositions and it had a lot of work in it. I was lucky I had a co counsel at that time, John Lowe, who had really gotten into the. He was in Charlottesville, Virginia, and he'd really got information from inside what they were doing to freeze women out. And we went around and took depositions of very famous people at the time, the heads, presidents, chancellors, whatever, they call, of the University of Virginia, of Virginia Tech, of William and Mary, which is a. Second old land grant college, United States. And they would give excuses that we don't have women's dorms and women can't live in men's dorms because there's wall hung urinals, there are communal showers, women need diminutive furniture, women need iron at night and the most crazy things. And the essence of a civil rights case because it let me sit there and say, why? Why can't this woman go here? Why do you have that opinion? And make them face reality, make them face their fears.
0: So that was sort of gratifying, I guess you're saying.
1: Yes, and it had wonderful results and affected far more people than the Loving case.
0: So if the peace movement had not happened at all, what do you think would have happened with the
1: Vietnam War? No idea. I don't think there's any way we're going to win that war. Ultimately, we would have found a way out. I think it just precipitated it, made it come much more quickly. And it enabled the American public to find out what was behind the war and statistics that were being concealed on the deaths and what's happening with Agent Orange, the things we were doing the other people and other nations to try and establish a democratic society there, which wasn't their way of life.
0: That makes sense. And so, I mean, you spent, was it like roughly a decade or 10 or 15 years between the peace movement and... The civil rights movement, that was sort of your sole focus. And then you transferred, you know, where you did a variety of different types of law and eventually animal rights. How did you decide or was it a decision like to move into different parts of the law and, and why those parts of the
1: law? It's just what happens at the time. Uh, you know, um, for a while, I did a lot of teacher rights law. I, the very first case I filed just before I graduated law school, because I was admitted to practice was a teacher rights case in New Bern, North Carolina. That led me to represent the NEA's Dushane Fund, National Education Association's Dushane Fund, which is their civil rights fund. And when all the United States picking out which teacher cases we would fund, we would try to try and develop a body of law and published articles on it and it was one of my earliest things was the civil rights work, but I also did the teacher rights work. And then in 1967, there was a statewide prison strike in Virginia. And the African-American prisoners sat down. They wouldn't do anything. It was so horrible there. And the NASP couldn't take it up. They were just swamped with so much from the traditional civil rights movement. So I became very active in prisoner rights at the same during that same period. And I started a group called the... Uh, uh, It became the national prison project of the ACAU. My group in Virginia, the Penal Reform Institute, I got Ramsey Clark, ex-attorney general, to be the chairman of my board. I'd gotten to know Ramsey during the peace movement. Uh, And the same time, uh, there was the big uh, Attica prison in New York had its huge uprising. There was a project up there. It was funded by the Playboy Foundation. I would gotten funding from the Stern Family Fund. We combined the two into the National Prison Project, the ACIU, which brought most of the major prison reform in the United States. I was chairman of that board for 20 years. So starting in the late 60s, I did a lot of, penal reform work. I brought the first statewide prison reform case, a very famous case, made a lot of law in there that was used as a model in many other states. Civil rights in the African-American civil rights was much more so in the 60s and early 70s the peace movement as you know was dictated by that war and that went away and then as you pointed out when PETA got started the animal rights group of people for the ethical treatment of animals their president was arrested in Virginia at a demonstration Ingrid Newkirk and someone called me and said hey would you represent her you've done all the civil rights work so I said sure why not the jury was out six minutes and acquitted her and then I was her lawyer after that. So I became sort of outside general counsel to PETA. I ended up teaching a course in animal rights law with another professor at the George Washington Law School. And I represented PETA for 40 years.
0: Wow. I mean, obviously, amazing accomplishments. And you've done so much for so many, and including four-legged menis. But sort of on the, I wouldn't say the other side of the coin, but a sort of different flavor is I remember during... I don't know, 70s, 80s, watching a 60-minute episode on these two brothers whose father was the richest man in the world that tried to corner the silver market. And then I realized that actually they were clients of yours. So the Hunt family, amazing story of of success and wealth. But how did you get involved with them? And like, what did you do? And like, what was their nickname for you?
1: (laughs) I don't know what they had. They called me. (laughs) I know when the case was over, it was a big victory in Nelson Bunker Hunt. I think it was on the cover of a Time Sunday magazine, maybe it was Time magazine. And he had an arm around me. There's no lawyer like a good Jewish lawyer. But I was, as I said, deeply involved in civil rights and the peace movement. In the peace movement, we found the government kept wiretapping the hell out of peace demonstrators. And I had a lot of background in that. Being a graduate mechanical engineer, I understood the technicalities of it that helped. I was hired by a private eye, Dick Bast, who's kind of nationally known then, the International Private Investigator. He's the one that Nixon tried to hire to go after the CIA with Watergate and prove it was all a put-up job. Dick had the first case under the Omnibus Crime Bill for possession of wiretap equipment. I had a big trial in D.C. We won that. It made a lot of law. But after that, I started filing those petitions for the peace movement against wiretapping by the federal government. The Hunts were arrested for wiretapping. There was some guys embezzling me is ours for their father H. L. Hunt, and somehow they heard of me through these private eyes. And I got a call one day, and I went to Dallas, and they hired me to be their lead criminal lawyer. I mean, I was surprised by it. I never received any kind of fee like that before. I, I didn't know what to do with the money. It was one I knew what to do with. But so I represent the the Hunt brothers, and in that criminal case, and then some major civil cases over the years.
0: Right. One was you know, where. You are on their side fighting against the world's largest oil companies,
1: which are, are some of the world's largest companies. That was an eleven year case that went on and on in New York and then seemed to ever go away. But I mean, yeah. is that
0: is that typical of of you know big, big litigation, just immense amounts of money spent and they take a long time? And is that still sort of typical?
1: Yeah. Well, major corporations, something I've always avoided. As a result of representing Hunt Brothers, I got a number of calls from others. Leon Hess called me and a number of others. And I said, no, it's not something I want to do. Over the years, I've been asked on a number of occasions to represent lead mafia people in criminal cases. And I consistently always said no to that, sometimes with great trepidation and fear. But representing the Hunt brothers was a unique experience. And right after them, I, I represented the Church of Scientology, which also was another huge fee, but a very immense criminal case.
0: Right. And I should mention, because with modern technology, people may not know what wiretapping is. So wiretapping is because phones used to be based on wires. It's listening in on phone calls, right?
1: Well, it's intercepting other people's communications by electronic means.
0: Right. And so then at one point you had your grandpa that was was upset with you because you represented the, uh, was it the American Nazi Party?
1: Yeah, well, it was a low point in my legal career. After helping form the HCIU of Virginia, I got a call one day that the head of the Nazi party in the United States, George Lincoln Rockwell, had been assassinated in Arlington, Virginia, and he was an ex-lieutenant commander in the Navy during the Korean War, which made him eligible to be buried in the Federal Cemetery. When they took him to the Federal Cemetery in Culpeper, Virginia, they were wearing SWAT stickers on their sleeves, you know, the famous symbol of the Nazis, and the marshals wouldn't let him in. And it was a direct First Amendment issue because if you can stop someone wearing a swath stick and sometimes wearing a cross or a Jewish six pointed star or a donkey or an elephant representing a political party. It was strictly a, a matter of speech, but they couldn't get a lawyer and they went to the ACA. The ACA called me. I said, I ain't going to represent the Nazis. I was a boy in Brooklyn, a young boy, when people started coming there. and Tell what was happening to the Jews in Germany and Poland and other places. But at any rate, they said, put your money where your mouth is if you believe in the U.S. Constitution. I was teaching constitutional litigation at Georgetown. So I agreed to represent them. And I went to court and we had a trial for this rather bizarre federal judge. who We called him Roran Oren, but he had his own way of doing things. So I had my client, Matt Kale, who was then head of the National Socialist White People's Party, which is the Nazi Party of the United States. And Judge Lewis told me, get my client off the stand. He read about it in the newspaper. He didn't believe my client. And he referred to you and your friend, the Nazis. And I got up and said, Judge Lewis, I want to be very clear about something. I knew the judge well, and we were friendly. I said, I want to be clear about something. I'm here to bury Rockwell, not to praise, paraphrasing Shakespeare. That made the front page of the Miami Herald. The next morning, my mother had a knock on her door for her best friend, and whether she has a son named Philip. And she called me up and said, do you represent Nazis? And I said, mom, let me explain. She says, talk to your father. I asked him to let me explain. He hung up on me. I was very, very close to my parents. And for two years, they didn't speak to me. It took one of my brother's father to make peace with him.
0: I mean, that was, that's a tough call for anyone. But I mean, you stuck with your principles. Obviously, you were not supporting Nazism and all that. But I mean, retrospect, would you make the same decision?
1: I didn't have any choice. You know, I remember walking out of court with a, SOB. And there are too many stories going to in a call like this with them. I remember walking out of the court and a guy looking at me and say, you know, when we gas the Jews, we're going to gas the Jew lawyers first. Being an ex-Green Beret, it took a U.S. marshal to stop me from tearing his head off, but I got by it.
0: Wow. That's awful. On a less drastic note, so lawyers, attorneys, I mean, could you just lay out for people that are listening like What do you think people get wrong about attorneys and what do you think they get right? Because obviously lawyers aren't always the most popular people by profession.
1: Well, and it's something lawyers have basically earned because people misunderstand the legal profession and what it does. And the legal profession fosters the misunderstanding. The fact is that, as I said earlier, we're, we're arbiters of peace without the legal profession, without the courts someone likes this beautiful house I'm in, they just show up my front door with a bigger gun than I have and take it away. The law stops that from happening. We work out our disputes in court. So whether it's marriages, whether it's torts, whether it's injuries, and a lot has been accomplished. I mean, the tobacco industry were brought in check. A lot of people were dying of cancer from cigarettes. It was a bunch of lawyers that got together and put that, and whether they made a lot of money or not, doesn't matter. The service to the country was great. So... In product liability, in malpractice by doctors, malpractice by lawyers, the litigation system has been enormously helpful. In civil rights, the biggest accomplishments of civil rights, albeit the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was a great step forward, has been through the courts. Brown v. Board of Education, Loving v. Virginia, a host of other cases. And people expect justice of the legal system, and it just isn't designed to give you justice. If you go to court, in a criminal case, and you get acquitted. You're innocent, you're acquitted. There's nothing very just about that because by the time you're acquitted, you've eaten up all your savings hiring a lawyer. You've probably got your wife or your husband's divorced you. Your kids have been thrown out of school or they can't face their friends. You've gone through hell and you're innocent. And it's the same way with civil litigation. So all we can do is try and keep it going and be better if the law itself had more input for people to understand what they're doing.
0: With attorneys, how does it break down? Because I think a lot of people see attorneys on TV and think they all go to court and spend a lot of their time, you know, talking to people and arguing in court, but like there's different types of attorneys, right? And like, what do most attorneys actually do during the day? And and how does it really break down in terms of, if you become an attorney, what are your career options?
1: Well, most attorneys probably end up doing administrative work more than anything else, office work, drafting. Uh, You know, There's a whole core of attorneys who are government lawyers, municipality lawyers, and they work for the city. They work for the federal government. They run agencies. They administer the laws. They help make the laws. There are too many attorneys and legislatures because very often it's a conflict of interest for a lawyer to be a legislator. If you're a personal injury lawyer and you keep fighting caps you're doing good for the public, caps, you know, limits on the amount you recover, different type of lawsuits. But you're also helping your friends and maybe your own law firm if you do that kind of law. But there are a lot of administrative lawyers, there are a lot of lawyers who help you fill out forms or for avoid antitrust laws. And in what you do in the source business, you've dealt with a number of lawyers, and, and how do you design this within the laws? And how do you design this, so you're not going to get sued? And How do you design this so it's safe and the public is safe? There is a small group of trial lawyers who go to court a lot, more like the barristers in England, but trial lawyers are not the average lawyer. Now, there's a lot of lawyers who maintain law offices, and they draft wills, they do divorce cases, and the bulkier divorce cases, there may be some minor litigation. Very often, they're worked out, they draft all sorts of things. So there's a lot of different things that lawyers do. Lawyers become judges, lawyers become court clerks. A lot of people go to law school to get the degree and then use it in business. They don't become practicing lawyers. I guess there's a number of them who just never wanted to leave school. It's a lot easier than getting a job sometimes. And so they end up being law school or maybe graduate school of business or graduate school and they don't know what they're going to do. As I didn't know what I was going to do. Never thought I'd be a civil rights lawyer.
0: And so when you think of lawyers and especially lawyers that went more down your path, what traits or skills do you think? you know, made you successful? And if people were thinking about going into law, you know, what traits do you think they should think about? Do I have or do I not have?
1: Of course, it matters what kind of law you go into. In my field, basically, I was a trial lawyer. I did mostly trials. You got to be willing to work hard. You know, you, you're going to get up and cross-examine someone the next day. And if they've had a deposition or they've had speeches they made, you, you have to go through those things. So if they say something to stand, you can quickly get to it and say, but didn't you say this contrary to that previously? And if you're in a big law firm, they have three associates who go through and lay it all out for them. And now with computers, make it easy to find. But the average trial lawyer, most of the average successful trial lawyers are not fed that way. They do it themselves. Hard work is the first thing. And lawyers aren't always the brightest people, not to say that you don't get these lawyers that... We see it some of them who go to the Supreme Court who do other things who are brilliant. But a lot of lawyers are just people who didn't know what to do with their lives and went to law school and they went out and hung up a shingle. And you can be very bright and spend your life writing wills and doing trusts and estates. It is a technical area of law. It's not my interest, but there are people who do have an interest in it. And it's a challenging field.
0: What else do you think you might have done if you didn't become a lawyer? What else do you think? would have been interesting or you would have been good at?
1: I like architecture. I like designing private homes in ways that they're very utile, that they're very economical, they meet people's needs, they meet the environment, they're aesthetically beautiful. Uh, It's something very creative about architecture. If I didn't have to earn a living, I'd probably do animal rights work. I love animals and what we've done to our fellow creatures in the society is horrendous.
0: Yeah, I could definitely see that. And I have the world's cutest dog, of course, so so that, that helps.
1: After mine.
0: After yours, of course, of course. If you had a mulligan, a life mulligan, is there something you would do over?
1: I regret that I didn't take you kids, my three children, with me more when I did my work and expose you to it. If there was some way to have achieved what I did, And been able to spend more time with my kids. I just really devoted myself to law practice, and it took a lot from my family life. You and I, we've traveled the world together. We've scuba dived all over the world, but I didn't have enough time with my other two kids. And even with you, I never took you to the civil rights demonstrations or the cases, other than pushing you against a catgis in Arizona.
0: (laughs) You definitely have a devilish streak in there. I've seen it. And so just for the record, I want to be clear that are you refusing to tell the chicken joke?
1: I'm not going to refuse.
0: <laughs> so then what is the chicken joke?
1: Well, you got to understand that I'm very, very into my religion and not going to synagogue and practicing it that way. But the history of the Jewish religion is very much in music. I love music. As you know, I was a cellist as a boy and I sang in the glee club and college, I was a soloist and glee club. And
0: you know, if you have to explain a joke this much before you even tell it, that's not a good sign.
1: Well, and humor, humor, Jewish humor. Oh, okay, and, okay. And the one-liners. Okay. So an old guy goes into a restaurant in, in Miami, and he says to the waiter, you know, what do you got to eat that's good? And of course, before four o'clock, you get the whole chicken at half price or something. And the guy says, oh, I can make it. Oh, we have chicken, we have this and that. And the, the old guy says, oh, good, make me a chicken. And the waiter says, poof. You're a chicken. <laughs> that's
0: the chicken joke. So obviously the reason I mentioned it is because that's become like a family thing because that joke's been told, I would say at least hundreds of times and everyone in the family is like, no, not the chicken joke. Ooh, you're a chicken. There's a chicken theme because like one of my kids who I won't name, their joke from childhood was, why did the chicken cross the road with a rope? Which, you know, obviously doesn't, for an adult doesn't make any sense, but it became a hilarious thing in our part of the family because she thought it was so funny and we thought it was funny that she thought it was funny and and so just picking this family tradition Um, Uh, and
1: remember it all goes back to the fact when i was a teenager i worked by vaccinating chickens i lived in the chicken farming area wow
0: well look i want to say thank you so much for for taking the time with me but more so thank you for sharing all this with you know lots of other people who will find interesting unfortunately you know, time is what it is. But I mean, I know from experience that you have a lot of other stories that are interesting, but you can't get to everything. But thank you very, very much for
1: for sharing the time. After the chicken joke, I got no place to go but up.
0: (laughs) I appreciate that too.
1: Thank you. All right.
0: Give it up for Dave Hershkoff, everybody. You've been listening to The H-Spot on the Funnel Radio channel. Never miss an episode, be sure to subscribe at the
1: hspotpodcast.com. dot com.